You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast brought to you by Tacticam. This podcast aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. We cover a variety of topics that will help you be more confident and successful in the field while hunting deer. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. This episode is launching on September 1st, and that means many of you will be hitting the field very, very soon. A couple of states have already opened, like South Carolina, some parts of southern Florida. Tennessee just had their velvet hunt. Kentucky opens up this weekend. Georgia opens up on September 10th. And for a lot of us, we're only a couple of weeks away from go time. So it is officially deer season. We've been waiting months for this, and now it's time to get going. Uh, the early season, though, can be boom or bust. You have to fight the heat, rapidly changing food sources, crops that are still standing, which present a problem. The woods are still lush, so bedding tends to be a bit more spread out across the landscape. And all of this can really make early season hunts really, really tough. I read an article a couple of years ago where the author said he thought the early season was the best time of the year to tag a specific mature buck that you're after. Now, I'll be honest, I've not had a ton of success on bucks in the early season. Now, I've shot does, I've had some opportunities at nice bucks uh, over the years, but I wouldn't exactly call it my most productive time of the year. So for this week's show, I sat down with the author of that article, Josh Honeycutt. Josh has been in the outdoor industry for over a decade. He's worked with a bunch of different companies like the NWTF, Realtree, North American Whitetail, Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine, and a whole lot more. And what's more, Josh has a lot of success hunting in the early season. Now, in this episode, we're going to talk about his big picture approach to the early season how he's spreading a wide net to locate the deer, and a few of the tactics that he uses to kind of stack the odds in his favor. It was a great conversation. I think you're going to like it. I think you're going to walk away uh, from it with some good stuff in your back pocket to help you be more successful in the deer woods here over the next couple of weeks. And uh, as we kick things off here, though, be sure to go leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you access this podcast. If you can give us a five-star rating, that'd be awesome. But hey, if you, uh, if you hate the show, that's cool too, I guess. Uh, whatever you want to do there. But uh, follow along with me on Instagram, How to Hunt Deer. We just got that page up and going, and we're going to be posting a lot more, especially as I begin 
to get some hunts under my belt in Georgia and South Carolina in early September, then back to Wisconsin for late September and early October. Also, if you've got some hunting buddies that dig hunting podcasts, share this show with them. I've loved watching this thing grow over the last couple of months, and uh, that word of mouth piece, that sharing the show with with friends, uh, is easily the number one way that we grow as a show. So I want to say thanks to all of you for listening each and every week. Thanks for sharing the show. Thanks for all the feedback that you give. Also want to say thanks to our partners who help us make all of this possible. First of all, Deer Lab. It works with your pictures from any camera with an SD card. It's packed with features, including the ability to filter your photos, which really came in handy for me lately. I had a couple of cameras that I'd set up on a field edge in late April and actually let them soak all the way through the spring and into uh, through July. Uh, by the time I made it back, each one of them had stuff grown up in front of them, causing tons of false triggers. And hey, that's just what happens when you leave something on, a, on an ag field, right? But one camera had over 10,000 images on it, which I just don't have the time to go through that. So I went in, I used the filter tool on Deer Lab and was able to weed out most of the false triggers with one click. You can get a free trial of Deer Lab right now for 30 days, no credit card required. Just head over to their website, DeerLab.com, to sign up. Then if you decide to pull the trigger and make a purchase, you can use the code HUNTDEER to get 20% off of any of their plans. Next up, Huntworth. I've bragged on their lightweight warm weather gear all summer long. Uh, it's going to be huge for me heading into these early season hunts. I've also bragged on their uh, backpacks over the last couple of weeks. They're Uh, The Lodi and the Hickory backpack are the two best packs that I have used. I I absolutely love them, and I've tried a lot of different packs. They just launched now, though, some new cold-weather gear with heat boost technology. Uh, They have graphene-infused fabric in this clothing. And what that's allowed them to do is reduce the bulk while at the same time making a warmer garment. One of the cool things that I learned uh, as I've researched graphene-infused clothing, because I've never, never heard of it before, it helps more evenly distribute your body heat so that you stay warmer, uh, which I think is just really cool. I have certain spots on my body, like my upper legs, that just tend to get really, really cold while I'm on stand. But uh, hopefully with this graphene-infused clothing, it's going to help me stay warmer all over the place, not have hot spots, not have cold spots. You can find all of their gear, their backpacks, their warm-weather gear, their new uh, cold-weather gear at HuntworthGear.com. Then finally, Tacticam. They are our title sponsor. Uh, They make the absolute best point of view cameras for outdoorsmen their new 6.0 camera is in my mind a huge step forward it's got everything that i love from their 5.0 and 5.0 wide cameras uh, the one touch operation optional remote control weatherproof lightweight durable 4k footage 8x zoom all of that good stuff but they added a screen which was to me the only downside to the 5.0 camera if you can call that a downside because you could still sync the 5.0 to your phone and kind of see what it's aiming at. But man, that screen is just a huge upgrade in my mind. But with that screen, you can go and rewatch your shot immediately. You can use the screen to control the settings on the camera. Uh, They took their value of being user-friendly and they really upped the ante with this screen. I can't wait to use one this fall. Uh, They also just launched the Solo Extreme camera, a little more budget-friendly option, but still gives you HD video. Still gives you one-touch operation, weatherproof housing, lightweight, durable, all that good stuff. So go check them out, Tacticam.com, or grab one of the wildly popular Reveal X Pro cameras or the Reveal X Gen 2 cameras at RevealCellCam.com. Like I said, these partnerships allow me to bring you pretty awesome content week in and week out. I could not do it without these brands that have gotten behind this show 
Uh, they also stand behind their products. Great people giving you great products with great customer service. So if you're in the market for some new camo, some new cameras, or you want a better way to analyze your trail camera data, go support the brands that support this show. Now here's my conversation with Josh Honeycutt. On the line with me today for the How to Hunt Deer podcast is Josh Honeycutt. How's it going, Josh? Going well. How are you? Doing pretty good, man. We're kind of in the that weird part of the summer where it feels like it should be over by now. Yeah, I know. I wish it was. Deer season would be here. <laughs> I know. I wish it was, too. Have you? I mean, I'm starting to see folks on social media who are doing some hunts. Uh, Tennessee did a recent velvet hunt. I think Mississippi's got one that just passed or is coming up very, very soon. Uh, have you been out in the woods yet this year, or are you holding off? I have not hunted yet, but uh, Kentucky starts on Saturday, uh, September 3rd. Um, and uh, so that, that'll be my first day in the field. I've done a lot of scout and done a lot of Pre-season press work, you know, throughout spring and summer. But uh, Saturday will be my first time in a tree. Excellent, man. Excellent. Well, good luck to you on Saturday morning. Hey, before we jump in too far, uh, you know, man, you're all over the place. You write for a lot of different outlets. I'm sure a lot of folks are familiar with your name. Uh, they've probably read something by you if they uh, have paid a lot of attention at all. Um, but for those who maybe aren't familiar with you, why don't you tell us who you are, what you do, kind of what your hunting looks like? Yeah, you know, I, I you know, I've, I've done some full time work in the industry for the National Wildlife Federation and for for Realtree uh, Camo, and but uh, you know, I've I've been a freelancer for a while, quite a while now. Do a lot of contract work for brands and businesses in the industry, doing content marketing work, and and uh, you know, I spend about half my time doing that, and then the other half of my time these days is spent working with traditional media outlets, you know, magazines, websites, and. And, you know, also doing some podcasting work and, you know, new age media, uh, if you want to call it that. But, uh, you know, just kind of doing a little this and a little bit of that. Um, but, yeah, you know, as far as where you see my work, like, you know, Realtree, NWTF, um, you know, I do a lot of work for deer and deer hunting, North American Whitetail, uh, Stream Outdoor Life, bowhunting.com, just about all the, the major uh, hunting magazines and websites. I do at least a little bit of work for them. Yeah, man, I see your... I see your name all over the place. Um, how long have you been in the industry now? Uh, about 10 years or so. I uh, first started uh, kind of dipping my toes in it, trying to get into the industry around 2010, 2011, uh, and then kind of started uh, rolling around 2012, 2013 is when I started to, to pick up a little bit of steam. Excellent, man. Well, I'm curious just real quick, like, how have you seen, I mean, you're, you're all over the place. You got a lot of things going on. How have you seen the industry change in the last, you know, 12 years or so? Cause I mean, it, man, it's been exponential, the rate of change. I feel like since, since I was, you know, a, a high school kid reading deer and deer hunting magazines. Oh yeah. You know, it's just how it is. Um, you know, I read somewhere the other day that, uh, technology, uh, you know, the efficiency, I don't know exactly what qualification or metrics they were using to, to measure this, but, uh, I, regardless, you know, the, the sentiment is the same, but, uh, technology, the rate of technology doubles every year. And, you know, things are oftentimes a little slower to impact the, uh, the outdoor industry. It just seems to be a little bit behind some of the others. Um, but, uh, it's, it's really starting to catch up now. Things are really starting to change. Um, you know, most of the media brands these days, you know, whereas they used to just be a magazine, the successful ones today are, are, are cranking out content across numerous different mediums. Um, 
integrated uh, uh, approaches for using different uh, platforms to, to, to get their message across. Um, and it's those brands in the, in the industry that are, are really going to probably uh, prosper into the future. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we talked a little bit off air, um, you know, what's true of these media outlets. The, one are, the ones that are successful are the ones that are, um, you know, using multiple different mediums to get their message out there, like you said. It's kind of the same thing for folks in the outdoor industry. Those who want to be successful today kind of have to have their hands in lots of different things if you want to piece it together. Uh, gone are the days when you can uh, throw a camera on your shoulder and, you know, have a TV show and that's your only thing that you do. Or, you know, write a couple of articles a year and that's all that you do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, but, but you know, and, and, and <laughs> the favorite term everybody likes to use the word hustle. Uh, you know, it really does take that. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think one of the biggest, you know, benefits from it is, you, you know, even though you're working hard, you're putting in a lot of hours, or, but you're working with content and, and subject matters that you really enjoy. Um, at the end of the day, you know, even though you're working for a lot of different people, um, so, so you're not really your own boss. You just got a lot more bosses instead of one <laughs> boss, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, you got like 30 or 40 instead of one, yep. but at the end of the day, you can kind of shape your own schedule. And, you know, that was one of the biggest things that attracted me to the, to the career path was not only, you know, primarily, you know, doing work that I enjoy, but, um, secondly, you know, even though, you know, you don't always have uh, control of your schedule. Um, you know, it gives you a little more freedom to be able to, to get out in the woods when you want to. And uh, as we all know, these mature deer, they aren't easy to hunt. Uh, rarely are they killable on weekends, you know, the weekends alone anyway. Some, right. some days it might be a Monday or a Tuesday or a Thursday when you need to get out there and get after them. And so that, that's one of the bigger benefits is being able to just have a little more flexibility in your schedule. But, but yeah, things always change. Um, but, but hopefully, uh, you know, all of us will continue to adapt. There you go. There you go. Yeah, man, that, man, I, I think one of the common misconceptions that folks have is, man, if I can get into the outdoor industry, that means I'm going to hunt for a living. Like that means that hunting will be my job. Now, absolutely. That is a crucial and essential part of what you do. But a lot of times that comes in addition to your work hours, you know, like you said, you're working long hours. This means, yeah, you went hunting today, but you get back home at eight and you've got to work till two in the morning to get all of your work done for the day. I'm curious, what does a season look like for you? What does hunting season look like for you as somebody who is very involved in the outdoor space? Yeah, you, you know, you're right. You know, that you don't get paid to hunt, that's for sure. Now, a lot of the times, you know, depending on what type of work you're doing, you know, you, you people don't want somebody who doesn't know, you know, who doesn't spend time in the outdoors, you know, a lot of times, depending on what it is, you know, but, but if somebody that's, that's delivering content generally, um, you know, these, these uh, businesses and brands, media outlets, they want somebody who's out there doing it. Uh, so that, that unfortunate part is you don't actually get paid to be out there. Uh, you know, you can kind of get paid sort of if you're out there shooting photography and videography and you figure out a way to monetize that. But uh, you're right. You know, you know, the, the, what you're actually paid for is time you spend behind the desk, regardless generally of what you're doing, unless you're, you know, a full time, you know, photographer, uh, if you're, you know, if you're, you're a contract videographer shooting content, you know, that, that's obviously going to be But if you're doing any kind of writing, editing, marketing work, most of that billable most of the billable hours are going to be uh, behind a computer so that's that's exactly right but as far as my my annual seasons generally 
you know, I'll, I'll, I'm a whitetail guy. I mean, I'm a big turkey guy, a small game too, so I, I hunt turkey and small game, stuff like that. But but I'm a whitetail guy, and that's what I like to do. I've, I've never really ventured into the big game, western big game or anything like that, not because I don't uh, I don't want to. It's definitely on my list to do someday. It's just I, I end up spending all of my time and budget money on uh, – White tails each year, so uh, you know like every year I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna do an elk hunt, and they're like, no, I'm gonna do two more states instead. So, <laughs> um, you know, I get, I, I really, generally, I hunt three states each year, four states. Uh, every now and then, I'll do an oddball state, but I really spend the bulk of my time in Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana. Um, this year, I'm gonna be doing a lot of hunting in Tennessee. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, it's just a balancing, you know, time between being in the office and being in the field. And, you know, obviously, you know, the most important of all is, is, fa- is faith and family. So, uh, those two things come first, but then, then, then work in the outdoors come third and fourth. But, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a really, it's really is a balancing act for those who try to get out and, and do it full time. Yeah, man, absolutely. So, you know, speaking of, of some of the writing that you've done, uh, I want to I want to go back to a, a I, I'll butcher the quote because I don't have it here in front of me. But about two years ago, I read an article that you wrote, and you said that you thought the early season is the best time of year to tag a mature buck, and you you kind of clarified that a little bit as we talked uh, offline here um, that you thought it was the best time to tag a specific mature buck, and I and I I agree with you. I think you're right. But that's what prompted me to say, hey, if I'm going to talk early season whitetails in this podcast, I think Josh Honeycutt's the guy that I want to talk to because obviously you love, love, love this time of year. So let's shift now to that early season topic. Um, what is your general approach? Just give me a 30,000-foot view of Josh Honeycutt's early season approach to hunting whitetails. Yeah, for sure. You know, like I, like you said, I, I do think it's the best time of year to tag a specific mature buck. Uh, you know, if you're just trying to kill a mature buck, I think the rut's still king uh, for that. Just because, you know, if you look at the research, and I'm not a biologist, but I look at a lot of research, um, if you study deer movement throughout the year, it gradually increases through summer, early fall, into fall, peaks in the rut, and tapers off during the late season. Uh, and that's daylight deer movement, you know, across all deer, including mature bucks. So um, if you're just trying to kill a mature buck, definitely the rut. But if you're trying to kill a specific mature buck, the early season is, is, is the is the time to do it. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of reasons why I feel that way. Um, you know, if you're hunting in a state especially that, that lets you hunt velvet deer, because deer just tend to be, once they go hard horn, they're like, oh, no, it's hunting season, you know. You know, I, I don't know if they – deer can't really reason, so I don't know if that's the exact process that goes through their mind. But deer tend to get a little bit harder to hunt once they go hard horn, in my opinion. Yep. So you – know, but, but once they're still in velvet, you know, if you're in a state like Kentucky, uh, Tennessee, um, South Carolina, Mon, you know, I think Montana, there, there, there's a, a, a bunch of different ones out there that, you know, probably seven, eight, nine different states that let you hunt velvet deer. Um uh, I think North Dakota, Maryland, or a couple more. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it, there's a lot of reasons why. So virtually the, the number one reason is the deer on pressure. You know, a mature deer is going to act very differently, you know, before and after he's pressured. Everybody knows that. So, um, you know, everybody says, you know, they like the late season for hunting specific mature deer. Well, deer are more pressured than ever by the late season. So the, the, the early season is the late season, in my opinion, without the pressure. Uh, obviously, food is a lot more abundant 
than early season than the late season. So deer are going to be less confined. But, um, you know, if you can find that deer that you're after, the early season is going to be better than the late season, especially if you have, you know, the bedding, the food that he prefers that time of year. And uh, you have a plan in place uh, to, to go after that buck. So let, let's jump on that piece right there. You just mentioned something that is uh, huge for me. I grew up hunting in South Alabama and man, that piece of food and water kind of being very abundant and all over the place and just finding a mature buck on a consistent pattern in early season can be tough. Where do you focus on as you're, you're trying to narrow down, you know, where is, where are the deer? you know, specifically right now in the early season, because it, it can really be boom or bust. Like you can, you can sit in a spot and see zero deer. You can sit in the next spot and see 20 right in the early season. Yeah. So what are you doing to narrow down where those deer are during the early season, especially when food and water are, are abundant? Yeah, for sure. You know, um, it, it gets harder uh, and there's no, there's no way around that. It gets harder. Uh, you know, just like when I'm scouting public lands, you know, the thing I'm looking for um, is is change. You know, when you're looking at something that has a lot of homogenous terrain, it gets exponentially harder. Not that you can't figure it out. It just takes a lot more time to figure it out. And it's the same concept whenever you're hunting an area that has an abundance of food, water, cover. Um, you know, it, it's homogenous food, homogenous water, homogenous cover is what you're looking at. And, and it has to be really spread out. And it gets a lot harder to, to figure them out. It just takes more time. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, it's a, it gets more difficult for sure. Um, so whenever I'm hunting properties or if I'm looking to, to lease a property, if I'm looking to, for, for new public lands, I'm avoiding those areas just simply because it's harder to hunt them. Um, you know, and kudos to, you know, and I, and I have hunted those areas. I do hunt those areas still, especially those that I have time to, to figure out over the course of time. Um, uh, but, but it gets harder. So I guess, you know, when you're trying to find those early season deer, um, I'm, I'm casting, you know, you said, what's the 30,000 level approach or a 30,000 foot uh, approach or, or view, um, casting wide nets is really where it starts. And that process for me starts in the early summer. Um, you know, generally I'll start putting out trail cameras and I put them, you know, where legal, some states that hunt allow me to, and some states don't. But uh, where the states that allow me to, I put trail cameras out over mineral licks in the early summer. And the states that don't allow me to do that, um, I'll put them over mock scrapes in early summer. Um, and, and some of those states let me use real deer lures. Some of them make me use synthetics. Um, you know, obviously follow regulations. But, um, you know, th- those are that's really where it starts is casting a wide net because you don't really know where these deer I mean, you can, you can drill down on food. You can drill down on, on bedding. You can drill down on water sources. But deer are deer, and they, you know, they don't always do what you think they're going to do. Even whenever the, 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 the property looks perfect, and you're like, oh, that big deer I saw last year, he's going to be back because this right here is where it's at. Uh, you don't know that for sure. So, you know, it, it, you, know you might have a, you fixed up a spot, you know, a 20-acre spot on your 200-acre property or whatever, and you think, oh, that's right where he's going to be come early season. You know, I've got all the food. I've got the preferred bedding cover for this time of year. i got a good water source. And he might be there, but he might be somewhere else on that property. So casting a wide net, regardless of whether you're hunting private, public, whatever you're doing, is really where it starts. And you can do that with trail cameras, scouting, glassing from afar, you know, all the tools that you have at your disposal. But that's really where it starts is casting a wide net. Yeah, and one of the things, that, it sounds like one of the things you're doing is kind of avoiding those places that are maybe just monotonous timber. Like you're, 
you know, when you're casting a wide net, you're looking at, I mean, even when you're zooming out trying to pick a property, you're picking properties that work in your favor uh, as far as, um, you know, you're not going to look at a, a, a big woods piece necessarily as, you know, as equal to the, the piece down the road that's got, you know, a mix of timber and a little bit of water here and there and some food here and there that's really visible. Is that right? Yeah, and, and it's kind of catch-22, especially on public land because those are the areas that's going to catch a lot of other people's attention too. Um, so, you know, it really drills down to trying to figure out, okay, what's going to be the most huntable ground that is going to get the least pressure, you know, especially if you're hunt, you're, you're thinking about public land. Um, you know, if you're on private land, you don't have to worry about other people scratch that you want to go to the areas that's going to be the most huntable that's holding deer. Um, you know, cause the real big difference between people who consistently kill big deer, mature deer. Um, and I'm not going to say big, I'm going to say mature and mature is going to be a little bit different based on where you're at. You know, some people that might be a two and a half or a three and a half year, year old deer in other places, you know, it might be a five and a half year old. So, 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 so that's a very, you know, wishy-washy term, but what, whatever the top deer are that you have access to, that's what I'll, what I'll say that, uh, get, get the, 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 the definition I'll give that, but, um, you know, finding places that hold those deer cause you can't kill a big deer if a big deer doesn't live there. And then secondly, finding the areas where those deer are actually huntable and, 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 and that, you know, comes down to access, you know, the terrain, the topography, you know, uh, you know, uh, an array of things, but finding where they live and then finding where they live that's huntable are the two biggest differences between people who consistently fill their tags on bigger deer and the people who don't. So, and that applies to early season deer as well. Yeah, man, that's good stuff. So, when you're casting this wide net, let's say you got a bunch of cameras out on uh, on a piece of property, uh, maybe they're on, let's say, some uh, some mock scrapes that you've set up. Maybe it's a place that doesn't let you use mineral or anything like that. You've got your wide net. You're finding these deer ideally beginning in the early summer. How much shifting are you seeing from, let's say, the end of June to the end of August? Do they do they tend to move around a lot? you know, on the property and you're trying to, you know, keep tabs on them during the summer or do you find them oftentimes holding up in one spot and really, you know, if they're there in late June, you know, come mid August, that's where they're going to be too. Yeah. A lot of the times I see similar activity going on from middle of June to middle of August. Things start to be a little bit different come late August and early September. Of course, uh, Kentucky, you know, I'll just use Kentucky as an example because it's, it's where I'll be hunting, where I do most of my hunting. But uh, it opens up the first weekend in September, so it can range from September 1st to September 7th or 8th. And, um, you know, so there, there, there can be a significant amount of variation between um, uh, mid-August uh, leading into early September, especially mid, mid-September. Um, you know, most of the time, you know, and, and, you know, I know everybody talks like, well, if you find a deer in summer, there's no, there's no sense in even putting cameras up. She's not going to be there come fall. And that's true for a lot of deer. Um, I would say that about half of the bucks, uh, at least on properties I hunt, and I know that's going to be a little bit different for everybody. Some people might have, might hunt in an area where, you know, they don't see any mature deer in velvet, but they have a lot of good deer come rut or vice versa. You know, they might see a lot of good deer, in, or, you know, it might be the other way, depending on the property. And it's all dictated on the property um, dynamics, the food sources, the bedding cover, the types of bedding cover, uh, you know, the hunting prep. There's so many variables that, that play into that. Um, but, 
Yeah, I think one of the biggest aspects is is trying to find deer in the summer, knowing that you may not be able to hunt those deer come early season, but some of them you will. Uh, and especially if you're in one of these early openers like Kentucky, Tennessee, some of these other states that let you hunt velvet, that percentage uh, uh, goes way up as far as being able to hunt those deer because a lot of the deer that at least I have access to don't really start shifting into their fall patterns until probably early to mid-September leading on up into middle of October. So, uh, yeah, it's it's really a a lot of work throughout summer for a small window of opportunity, but your odds are are, are so high uh, of being able to fill a tag during that time. Yeah, do you – do you think that the that the fall shift is kind of overblown? Because I I, had, I do hear a lot of folks say, you know, I don't bother with with cameras until September, or I don't bother with cameras until you know the very end of August or something like that. Because like you said, those bucks aren't going to be there. I I'm kind of developing an opinion right now uh, that may be incorrect. Uh, we'll see how it develops over the next couple of years. But it seems to me that the whole idea that you know those deer are just going to disappear come the moment they shed their velvet uh, is, is a bit overstated. Do you think that that's true or do you, do you think that differs property to property or state to state? I don't, th- yeah, you know, I, I think, I do think it differs from property to property, you know, because I, I know, how, you know, the properties that I've hunted over a long period of time and I know what other people hunt. It, it's different. Like for example, I, I just leased a property in Ohio for, the past three years it just sold so i had to pull everything out but i hunted it for three years and the deer there that i got on camera uh in velvet were pretty much the deer i was hunting all season long rarely even even during the rut we would only have one or two good bucks show up that we didn't see in velvet um every now and then we would have one or two deer show up in the late season you know just because food sources were depleting but uh, uh and we made sure to keep good food on the property but you know it was one of those things where it is it's property to property um you know i I would i wouldn't even say it's state to state or county to county but property to property depending on what's available on that land you know deer uh, they have three basic needs well four basic needs food water cover and reproduction you know that's that's what drives everything really food drives most of that um you know Obviously, if you want to see deer, deer during daylight, legal shooting hours, bedding cover is very important, too. And then, obviously, you got to have water. You're not going to have deer there either. But, um, you know, deer are going to go wherever they can satisfy those things. The problem, I think, and, and the misconception that, you know, like, you're saying, people who say, oh, I've got this deer in velvet, I'm not going to see him come fall. That may be true, you know, especially if they – hunt a small property because deer have a bigger, pretty big home, home ranges. You know, the average home range is about 650 acres. Now uh, that can be plus or minus depending on, you know, the, the habitat quality, um, you know, with a deer that can get all of its basic needs in smaller areas and use a smaller area deer that can, you know, can't is going to use a bigger area. So and it can also have to do with individual tendencies and personalities. So the person who owns a small property, you know, they may only see, you know, top end shooter deer, you know, mature bucks, early season or during the rut or a certain time of year. I know that to be true because I hunt some small properties and generally always those small properties. And I say small properties are anything under a hundred acres. Generally, uh, I see those properties peak at a certain time of year. Um, fortunately for me, those, most of the small properties that I have access to, you know, they peak during the early season. Um, and then I don't see as much activity during the rut, but those are the properties that I like to focus on. 
during the early season. And then there's other small properties that I have access to that seem to peak during the pre-rut and rut. So I do think there is something to that, but somebody who has access to a larger property, somebody who has access to maybe several hundred acres, you know, 200 plus acres, especially three, four, 500, whatever it is, it's going to be rare, but this applies to public land too. I think a lot of these, these people will still see some of those bucks come pre-rut and rut as well. Of course, we know how the rut is, the deer, you know, to be here today, five miles down the road tomorrow, but uh, during the rut. But yes, I, I do think there is something to what people say, but for the people who who have a micro mindset, it's like, oh, well, I'm going to hunt this deer during the early season. I still think that summertime work is worth it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's jump, you know, you mentioned four things that deer need, food, water, cover, and reproduction. Reproduction's kind of down the list a little bit there in the early season. When it comes to food, water, and cover, uh, what's kind of your starting point when you're putting together a game plan uh, for an early season hunt? Yeah. So deer, you know, don't, they don't need the type of bedding cover uh, during the early season and the summer, you know, which, which the summer bleeds over into the early season for these early openers. Uh, Not so much for those who open up in October. I'm just speaking to like August, September openers right now. Um, but those, you know, they don't need that heavy, thick, high stem count cover. Generally, they're going to be bedding closer to food because they're not pressured. Um, they're going to be bedding in cooler areas because it's hot. I mean, it's been a hot summer. They're going to be bedding in cooler areas. Oftentimes, it's going to be uh, lower-lying areas. It might be close to creek streams, you know, bodies of water. Um, you know, it's going to be close to the food, but it's also going to be in areas like that. Now, they still like to check boxes when they're bedding, so they do – they do like certain things that I've seen, um, even in the early season. You know, they like to be able to use the wind to their advantage whenever they're bedding down. A lot of times those deer will bed down with their back to some cover. They like to see a little bit more openness in front of them. Um, they like to bed down with that wind coming from their rear so they can smell behind them, you know, look downwind with their eyes, cover all around with their ears. Um, you know, so there are some, some tendencies that carry over some common threads that we've uh, bedding cover selection throughout the season. But by and large, generally, you know, like, like we'll just show a stark contrast here, you know, in the early season, deer need bedding cover that keeps them cool, you know, it keeps them secure, but they're, they're also looking for somewhere to stay cool because it's hot. Where in, so that's going to be in a lower lying area, closer to water in the late season, especially in these really cold states, like, you know, the Northern half of the country. They're looking for places that also keep them secure, but they're but they're looking for places to keep them warm too. And that's why you see so many deer focused on solar cover, which is, you know, southern facing slopes, and then thermal cover, which is, you know, coniferous trees, you know, pines, spruce, cedars, um, because those hold in a lot more heat. So deer are checking boxes and they, those boxes can vary some throughout the year. So when it comes to the early season bedding, they'll look for areas that offer them the advantage because they're gonna use it. Um, but also look for places that keep them cool. Yes. I'm, I'm curious on that, on that food piece. I mean, water is pretty self-explanatory, right? The deer need water. Water sources are all around for most of the Eastern half, I think of the whitetails range when it comes to food though. I mean, obviously early season acorns are King. If you've got green soybeans, man, those are King. Um, I'm curious how much like natural browse plays into your hunting strategy. Yeah, there's there's huge uh, amounts of browse that's consumed during the early season. Browse is a deer's primary food source throughout much of the year. 
um, especially if you're hunting somewhere that doesn't have a lot of ag. You know, as you said, soybeans are king. Corn is really, I mean, deer will feed on corn, you know, throughout the summer, but it's really not the target until, you know, corn gets picked uh, in September, October. But uh, soybeans, if you've got access, that's where the deer are going to be. I mean, like, for example, there's one property that I have access to. It's usually not a good early season property just because a lot of the neighbors have soybeans, but there's a lot of cover. It's a big CRP farm. Uh, CRP and timber is pretty much all it is. And come the rut, pre-rut rut, and even into the late season, deer are just in there because, A, they like that cover, and, B, there's a lot of browse. Now, it really is about these other food sources that are high protein. Uh, that's what deer need in the summer. They need a lot of protein as they build up for the fall. So they're seeking out these high protein food sources. So, and foods, deer, deer have been known to eat upwards of 700 different plant species across its range. And so exactly what those natural food sources are, are going to be different from place to place. So I hate to start throwing out specific food plot or excuse me, food uh, 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 selection, because it's going to be a little different everywhere you go. But, you know, do some research for your area. Um, look for those high-protein food sources because that's what deer are looking for in summer and early season. Obviously, as it starts to get a little later and we're looking at uh, colder temperatures, that's going to shift to carbohydrates. That's going to be a big, big focus. Uh, fats are going to be a big, big focus as well. Um, but, you know, yes, browse is a huge uh, a huge uh, uh, component of a whitetail's diet, even during – the uh, the early season so it's a big part of it yeah yeah i want to shift just a little bit here and, and talk about weather's influence in the early season a lot of guys say hey weather doesn't matter get out there and hunt and won't miss an opening day other guys say hey if it's above this temperature i'm not even going to bother going because i don't think the deer are going to move at all how do you factor in weather to your thinking like if it's if it's 95 on kentucky's opener are you going Yes, 100%. Um, you know, I, I don't think temperature impacts whitetails quite as much during this early season phase. Um, you know, deer are crepuscular. We'll, we'll throw that out there, too, which means deer move most at dawn and dusk, period. doesn't matter what the conditions are. Unless it's just some super inclement weather, deer move most at dawn and dusk. They're crepuscular. That's, that's what that means. So, uh, you know, yeah, so it doesn't matter what the temperature is. I'm going, I'm hunting early season. Um, you know, I, I think weather does can, can have some impact on whitetails. You know, a lot of the research out there that I've looked at is kind of con- conflicting on this topic. Some of it suggests that certain types of weather can impact whitetails and other research studies studying the same thing and said, no, it can't. So, so who, who knows for sure, but just from my own anecdotal experiences, one of the key weather things that I look for, I don't really even care what the temperature is. Now, if you've got a big, serious temperature drop during the early season, like say it's been in the 80s and then all of a sudden, you know, it drops down into the, the low 70s, I, I do think that can spur deer to move. Um, again, the research on that is kind of conflicting, but just from my anecdotal experience, I think that that's true because I hunt the hot days and the, the cooler days. So I see, I seem to see a little bit of a difference there, but another thing that I really look for is rain events that coincide with late afternoon. Again, it may be complete hogwash. I don't know, but just my, my anecdotal experience is that if you have a day where it's been hot or, or, or moderate, and then you get a late afternoon rainstorm, maybe small one, big one, whatever. 
if it comes somewhere from three to four to five, six p.m. somewhere in there, not six p.m. but three three to five p.m. and it stops within an, an hour to two hours of dark, I don't. I, again, I, I've killed my biggest deer on a day like that, and um, and I've, I've shot a couple others as well in similar situations. So those are probably the two things I look for. <clears throat> Excuse me is a big temperature drop like that i think it has the power to to impact gear but i think those those rain events can do the same just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the how to hunt deer podcast is brought to you by tacticam makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers their gear is made by outdoorsmen for outdoorsmen archery openers are just around the corner and tacticam just released several new products to help you share your hunt and take your scouting to the next level Topping the list is their 6.0 point-of-view camera, providing 4K footage in a user-friendly, waterproof package. They've also just released the new Solo Extreme, giving you HD footage, 3 to 8x zoom, and one-touch operation that you've come to expect from your Tacticam point-of-view camera. Tacticam's lineup of cameras is supported by the best mounts and adapters on the market. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount, as well as their bendy clamp mount to make sure my cameras don't miss any of the action. And last but not least, they just launched the Reveal X Pro, with no visible flash, built-in LCD screen, and built-in GPS tracking, the Reveal X Pro will help you take your scouting to the next level. You can learn more about these and Tacticam's entire line of products at Tacticam.com or RevealCellCam.com. This episode is also brought to you by Deer Lab, the number one trail camera app for hunters and land managers. Deer Lab gives you a simple way to store, organize, and analyze all of your trail camera data. Deer Lab has tons of great features like the ability to filter photos based on what's in them like deer or turkeys or people. It syncs your photos with local weather to help you pattern your target. And you can even mass edit your timestamps, which is a great feature if you're like me and you forget to correct the time on your camera. Head over to DeerLab.com to check them out. You can get a free 30-day trial. And then when you're ready to buy, use the code HUNTDEER, all caps, for 20% off of any plan. Now let's get back to the show. Thinking about early season then, um... How aggressive are you getting? Like, are you doing a lot of, let's say, observation sits and sitting back and kind of watching the action? Or are you, you know, going in for a kill sit, um, you know, thinking I'm, I'm going to sneak in as close as I can get to this bedding without blowing the deer out? Yeah, it really depends on what the deer are doing. I let the deer tell me that. Um, and, and if the deer is moving a great distance or moving a lot in daylight, there's no, re- no reason to risk it. Um, stay closer to the food, back away from those bedding areas just a little bit. But, you know, if a deer is not moving that much, I'm not afraid to push in and hunt real close to a bedding area, even during the early season. You know, uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you got to save your best stands for the rut. And I do believe that a lot of times, in most scenarios, that is true, I think. Um, if your property peaks during the rut, that's the, that's the key factor there you know saving your property if you if you hunt a place and you have a lot of history with it i think saving a property for whenever it peaks whether that's the early season or the rut or late season whatever that might be is the right play um but sometimes you know you got a deer on camera he's in there especially if it comes to public land or, or, or even private land that multiple people have permission to hunt on really being you've got to uptick that that aggressiveness just a little bit um, because if you're too passive a you give that time to change its pattern or b you give somebody else time to move in on that deer and and, and to the former whitetails are constantly changing their patterns even 
you know, th- you know, we talked a minute ago about how deer don't really change a lot from mid June to mid August. That's that's true in part. They don't really change the total area that they're spending time in. But even even in those small areas that they're remaining in at that time, their you know their their patterns are shifting. You know, there might be you know, like I said, the deer eat up to seven hundred different species of plants. Well these plant species are peaking at different times and deer are concentrate selectors, meaning they're eating the best parts of the best plants that they can find at that time. And that's constantly changing as you move throughout the course of, of, of deer season, throughout the course of the entire year for that matter. So even though they're, they're still in the same areas, they're slightly changing those patterns here and there as different food sources peak. So I think the big, the big thing to remember is that, you've got to stay on top of those patterns. And if you're, you're too passive, if you wait too long, uh, if you don't push in when you think you might should, you know, you, you can almost miss your window of opportunity. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that has come up a couple of times, uh, as I've talked with different guys about early season hunting is, you know, growing up, I kind of got this idea in my head, um, possibly from hunting media. I don't know where I picked it up. Maybe I just created it. I got this idea of like these, these patterns that would last two or three weeks and then the acorns would start dropping and then the deer would shift again for three weeks. And then, you know, you get close to the pre-rut and the deer would shift again for three weeks. But for early season and really much of the season, we're talking patterns of like three or four days at a time. Is that consistent with what you're seeing? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it, it can be, you know, three or four days. It, there might be times where it remains a couple of weeks. I mean, for example, where, where I live here, and this is not a property I have access to. It's just a property that I see driving down the road. But there, there's a couple of deer, mature big deer, that are coming out in this soybean field. And they have been doing almost the exact same thing all summer long. You know, they've been coming out in the same little inside field corner. You know, and again, this is, it's just a big CRP, or excuse me, a big soybean field that I can see, you know, from the roadway. And they're just very visible deer. And they, they've been doing pretty much the same thing every single day, just about all summer long. So, so the, the larger, it's like, it's like they have layers of patterns. They have big patterns that are, that they use a lot and they have, you know, medium patterns and then, and then lower level patterns that they use less often. And oftentimes we look at deer and we see their patterns like, Oh, they've got this big, huge pattern. And that's true. That's the pattern that they use. The overarching pattern is what I like to call it. But then they've got patterns within patterns within patterns. And really those patterns within patterns within patterns are what change on those lower level three, four day periods. Once you get, you know, into the fall and things really start to rapidly change, you know, summertime, the the rate of change is much slower than it is once you get into deer season. That rate of change is much more rapid in my opinion. But because you have so many different influential factors that that's impacting these deer, but but yes, I think you're right. I think that there's small windows, uh, three four day windows, um, as these patterns change throughout summer, especially in fall and winter. Yeah, yeah. So with that in mind, how much early season scouting are are you doing? Um, you know, in season scouting, are you doing during the early season, or are you kind of leaning more on? you know, historical data and kind of knowledge of your properties from previous years? Well, for, for properties that I have access to for, for multiple seasons, I'm relying heavily on that historical data. 
And what you can do is you, once you really learn a property, especially if you have the ability to really go in and look and know what a tree species is or a plant species, excuse me, plant species or, or all the different basically food sources and, and stuff like that that are on the landscape on the property. You can identify those and then do your research and figure out generally when those things peak. Uh, if it's a mass crop, know when they drop. If it's a you know plant species that they're just they're just eating the vegetation, know when it peaks. Know whenever it hits its peak, you know peak attractiveness. Um, and you can know you can basically predict when deer are going to be there. And you don't even need to you don't even need to scout a lot of times because you know when I mean deer know. They know they're in, I mean, it's like, it's like when you go to a buffet, you know, what's on the buffet. You've been there before, you know, exactly where to go to get the fried chicken, you know, exactly where to go to get the, 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 the refried beans, you know, <laughs> so they're the same way on the properties that they live on. But if you know when these, because again, they're concentrate selectors, they eat the best available food of the best available plant that's available to them. So if you know, when these things peak, you can almost be there when deer start showing up. So, I, I rely heavily on that historical data for properties that I hunt over time, but obviously the properties that you don't have that for, you, it relies more scouting. So you need more in the field scouting, more glassing from afar, more truck hammer work, more observational sits, just more sits in the tree in general as you learn that property. That's the great thing about historical data though. You can be much more surgical in your approach for properties that you have access to over time Whereas properties that you're just hunting for the first time takes a lot more in the field work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for, for a guy that's maybe a weekend warrior, right? Maybe he can't get out Monday through Friday. Maybe he has, you know, Saturdays and then maybe a little bit of Sunday or Sunday afternoon or something like that to hunt. These rapidly changing early season patterns can be really difficult to nail down. Um, Any advice for that guy that, you know, says I can get out once, maybe twice a week. How can I, you know, I, I can't spend enough time in the field to to really keep up with, you know, which plants are, are hitting their peak right now as far as uh, the deer's preference. What would you say to that guy? Yeah, so, I mean, I would just focus on studying a lot of maps at that point. You know, if you don't really have a lot of time to, to really figure out what's going on, you got to start looking for, for areas that are going to optimize your efficiency. Um, and flat terrain is, is a little bit harder to do that because deer, deer, terrain impacts deer all season long. Um, it impacts what, how they use the property, how they, they travel from one point to, to, to another. So if you don't have the time to really drill down on exactly where deer are feeding at, I mean, obviously you need to know where deer are feeding, where they're bedding. I mean, that, that's really deer hunting one-on-one. I mean, you have to know where they're bedding. You have to know where they're sleeping or excuse me, where they're, where they're bedding and where they're eating. Because if you don't know that, you're not going to be able to kill them. Um, deer are, it really is simple in terms of you got to intercept them from point A to B. And that, and so you got to put in whatever it takes. You got to put in that work, figure out where they're bedding, where they're eating. But that aside, as far as figuring out where to intercept that movement, you know, trying to figure out, okay, where are they sleeping at? And then look for interception points. Uh, if you think you know where they're bedding, think they know where they're, they might be feeding at, then look for to both habitat type or habitat features, uh, terrain features, topographical features that are going to kind of condense deer movement. You know, so and, and pinch points. Everybody talks about pinch points during the rut, funnels during the rut. It really works the same way a lot of times during the early season too, because deer are going to take the path of least resistance even outside of the rut. So 
trying to drill down using maps, you know, because again, you're trying to be as efficient as possible. You don't have a lot of time. It really is about crossing off the areas of disinterest just as much as it is about finding the areas of interest because you don't have time. Say it's a thousand acre public, public land. You don't have time to walk all that. So you really want to go in, scout heavily with maps and, and, and apps, cross off the areas that you don't like, like that homogenous terrain. There might be a giant deer in there, but you know, you don't have time to figure that, 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 you know, homogenous terrain out because you just don't have time to scout it and hunt it. So look for the areas that are going to be more huntable that, that you think are going to be close to areas where deer is bedding and feeding at. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's really good. Um, I want to shift and talk about mornings a little bit. Um, you know, mornings have gotten a bad rap for a long time. Uh, when you, when it comes to early season, then right now there's a lot of folks talking about, no, mornings in the early season are the best time to kill a deer. What are your thoughts on hunting mornings? Uh, maybe talk a little bit about kind of opening weekend uh, and then, you know, the weeks thereafter. Um, what do you think about mornings? Yeah. So you're not probably going to like my answer, but I think that people try to, I think a lot of, and I, I, I do it plenty myself, um, but I think a lot of people try to put, try to make deer hunting black and white and all these, these sub categories of deer hunting black and white, like hunting mornings during the early season. Like some people are like, oh, I never hunt mornings during the early season. And then other people say, oh, I love to hunt mornings during the early season. Should I'll always do it. Always consider it. I think it really, when it comes to deer hunting, and not just this ter- this topic, but just about any topic you want to talk about, but just looking at early, early season morning hunts, I think it just depends. It depends on the situation. Um, you know, when it comes to deer hunting, as far as, you know, everybody's the discussion is like, oh, you can't get into an early morning set without bumping deer. Well, same is true during the rut if you don't have the right access. It just all boils down to access. You know, deer, again, deer crepuscular. They move the most morning and evening. Early season deer move during the morning. They move during the evening. It just boils down to the type of access you have. If you have a deer that you're wanting to hunt during the early season and you have the right access to get into the stand locations where that deer is killable at, then yeah, by all means, hunt morning because you're just going to increase your odds of success there. If you can't get into those areas, without pressuring deer, without alerting deer, especially, and I'm not talking about bumping a doe that's, you know, beside the truck, you know, and you got a, a mile hike in, but if you're going to bump deer, the, the, the deer you're after, or if you're going to bump deer, that's going to in turn bump the deer that you're after, um, you know, then, then maybe hold off and don't hunt mornings if you don't have the right access. So, so my answer to that and to pretty much any, any related topic is if you have the right access to get in and go after a deer, that's moving at a certain time of day, morning or afternoon, then go for it. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the things that I hope folks take away from a lot of the interviews that I do on this podcast is that, you know, while there are lots of, uh, I mean, obviously the hunting media space is full, right? Tons of folks out there putting out information. There is no silver bullet. There is no definite answer. It's all so situational like property to property, state to state, uh, depend, stand to stand site even. You know, like you said, depending on access, there is no, hey, don't ever hunt mornings or, hey, always hunt mornings. It's where's the buck that you're after? What's he doing? Can you get in there quiet enough in the morning before he makes it either back to his bed or leaves the food source or whatever that case may be? But there is no silver bullet answer of, hey, if you master this one thing, you'll kill a mature buck every time out. 
Yeah, it really, that's, that's so true. And, you know, when I look at the best hunters that I know, and I am nowhere anywhere close to these people, but whenever I, I look at the, 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 the best hunters that I know and I analyze what they do differently, what skill sets they have, uh, what tactics they use, it, it really doesn't, none of that really matters. It doesn't matter how good a shot they are. Doesn't doesn't matter, uh, you know, how stealthy they are. I mean, these things matter, obviously. But the, the biggest differentiating factor in these really, really good deer hunters and then the deer hunters that, you know, aren't quite up to, to that level. Um, it, the, 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 the biggest differentiating factor, again, we talked about a couple other facts earlier. You can't kill a big deer where a big deer doesn't live. So, obviously, if you're not hunting where a big deer doesn't live, you know, you're out of the game. But you know, all things equal saying everybody had equal access to big deer. The one thing that, that, that this group of hunters does is they are able to read a situation. Uh, maybe it's a specific target, but maybe it's, you know, just, just tackling a specific property, whatever, you know, metric you want to look at there. They are able to look at a situation and respond accordingly. They know that there is no, one size fits all answer. There is no one solution to a specific proper uh, problem or question. Um, they are able to look at the situation that they find themselves in, assess it, and then make a decision based on all the you know associated variables. And the solution or the decision that they come to is going to be it could be it's going to be very different than what another hunter or well that even that same hunter would come to on a different property somewhere else. They look at a situation, they assess it, they analyze the variables, and then they make the decision based on what they know. And the, the conclusion that they come to is going to be different. Even for like, like, for example, we're talking about early season morning hunts. You know, they might conclude, oh, there's absolutely no way I could get in there and hunt that deer early of the morning. You know, just I don't have the right access on this property. But then they've got another target buck five miles down the road, and the answer is completely opposite. So, being able to assess your situation, understand that whitetail hunting is never black and white, aside from game laws, stuff like that, um, and, and maybe some other principles. Um, but uh, knowing that, that really whitetail hunting, as far as tactically speaking, is, is not black and white but shades of gray, that's really the, the, the best thing that somebody can do to, to elevate their skills as a deer hunter. Yep, yep. And one of the things that I always, you know, either – new hunters or folks who reach out online, you know, asking different questions about, about deer hunting specifically. One of the things that I always kind of encourage them toward is, Hey, you need to increase your, your data set in your mind. So you need to increase your familiarity with your property, the deer on your property, what the deer on your property like to do at given times of year. That way, when you've got to sit back and make that kind of decision, um, you've got all the data in your mind. You can kind of run through the situation that you've been given and say, okay, I know these 11 factors about the deer on my property and how they move, I'm going to run it through this grid of everything else that I know. And then I'm going to piece together a plan from there rather than just saying, Hey, there's acorns over here. I'm going to go sit on them, you know, sort of have this full data set that you can kind of use to inform your decision. I want to shift one more time here and run you through a couple of scenarios and kind of do a, a what would you do in, in this situation? So, Assuming that I have a million dollars, which I don't, uh, but if I did and I told you, hey, Josh, if you can go to this property and kill a deer in the early season, I'll give you a million bucks if you can do it. But here's the, here's the catch. I'm going to drop you 
on a large piece of public land that is uh, has some diversity within the timber, but it's all big woods. It's all big woods. Where are you going to start? That's hard, you know. Um, you know, is, is, you know, is it flat ground? Is there any kind of terrain? Yep, there's there's a, a good bit of rolling hills. Good bit of rolling hills. Yeah, you know, I get, uh, one place to, to start would be, uh, you know, a lot of times I've found, and, and maybe this is just specific to the properties I hunt, but I see a lot, especially hot early season temperatures, you know, a lot of times these deer kind of tend to bed on north-facing slopes. Um, you know, just again, it's opposite of what deer are looking for during the late season. You know, they like those south-facing slopes because they get more sunlight. Um, these north-facing slopes tend to be a little bit cooler um, than, than, than other areas, you know, um, so that, that's something to consider generally, you know, on public land, you know, that, you know, especially in this scenario where you just, just mentioned, um, you know, big timber public land, oftentimes these, these public lands are going to be bordered by private lands that have ag on. That's a big common theme, um, you know, in a lot of states, you know, you'll have a lot of heavy, heavy timber, um, on the public and then right across the property line, it, it cuts over to private land. So hunting close, you know, obviously be respectful. Don't, don't hunt property lines in a, in a disrespectful manner, but, um, you know, hunt, kind of getting closer to those property lines, you know, but the, those borders between private and public, um, oftentimes can help intercept big deer, especially if they're bedding on the public, which that, that's very common. You'll see a lot of deer bed on public feed on private. You know, that's just a, a big thing throughout the country. It doesn't matter where you're at. Um, but yeah, so those, those are two things that I would look at there. Um, again, when, when it comes to homogenous terrain, you're looking for minute things to, uh, to, to, to try to intercept deer or, or learn the property as fast as you can. And so whenever I'm looking for things, like I said earlier, you know, deer will still use, you know, the terrain to their advantage, even during early season. So looking for saddles, looking for pinch points. I think a big one for early season, uh, even, even the early season is looking for hubs, thermal hubs. Um, and that's a, that's a topographical feature where, uh, you have several fingers that taper down into a low lying area. Um, you know, thermals are huge when it comes to, uh, uh, mature deer, mature deer know how to use thermals to their advantage. Uh, and, and they do this all year long, even during early season. So if you're in hill country, a lot of the times these deer are going to be bedding down kind of towards the low lying areas again, for several reasons, early season is hot, you know, it's cooler down there, but also they got all that wind coming down from these, these higher elevations and it funnels down into these low lying hubs. Um, and so if you've got several finger ridges that taper down into us into the same area, you've got thermals coming down from multiple directions and a deer knows that and they can smell all of that scent coming down from like two, three, four, five different directions at times. And they can smell that danger coming from a lot of different directions instead of just one. So looking for just, and there's, there's like 10 or 15, 20 different things that we could talk about like that to, to look for on properties. And some properties are going to have these features and some properties aren't, but looking for the, the in homogenous timber and homogenous terrain, looking for topographical features that really, kind of can give you some kind of advantage and you're really looking for what gives the deer the advantage more or less than you, but you're looking for advantages that deer are going to take advantage of that you can take advantage of. And that's really what it comes down to. You're trying to figure out a property really fast. 
All right. So, all right, we're going to shift gears. So that was a big public piece of ground. Now I'm going to drop you on a, on a private piece that you've got some history with. Uh, the only problem is there are other guys who hunt this property too. You're not necessarily buddies who are going to be coordinating. You know that they're trying to beat you to the deer on the property. It comes around to opening morning. It's an average weather day, not really any rain or anything like that. It's just a normal day, no cold fronts blowing through or anything. Opening morning and opening afternoon, what's your ideal setup going to be uh, that makes you feel like, hey, I've got a high percentage chance on this place? Well, you know, a, a private property that you have access to that n- numerous other people have access to as well, especially if you're not coordinating, it's literally no different than public land. Uh, a, a lot of private properties that have a bunch of, uh, of, of people that who have been given access uh, or get granted permission, these properties oftentimes get more pressure than actual public land. Man, that's so, so true. It, the, 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 yeah, the, the mindset's no different. I mean, I, I was talking to a guy yesterday, a good friend of mine, and he was telling me that uh, property that he used to have sole permission on is 70 acres. And now there's about 10 different people that have hunting permission there. And, and I was like, goodness gracious, 10 people on 70 acres. That's, that's, I would say that the, the, the pressure on that is worse than any public land you could ever probably look at, you know, yep. um, and, you know, when you just break it down. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of private lands out there that get more hunting pressure than, than public land itself. So your mentality, if anything, you need to be even more aggressive than you would be on public land. Um, if that's the scenario you find yourself in, because a lot of these public lands, especially during the early season, especially outside of gun seasons, public lands don't get, unless you're going to like a, a huge destination like Iowa, you know, or, you know, somewhere that gets you all kinds of attention. You know, most of the places that I've hunted public don't get much pressure outside of gun seasons, And they definitely don't get much pressure outside of the rut. Um, simply because people who are taking trips, you know, it might be a, a local or two who's hunting, but they don't get these really big out-of-staters coming in to hunt unless A, during gun season, or B, during the rut. So during the early season, public lands don't get as much pressure as people think they do. So, but as far as the scenario you've given here, you know, it's hard. Again, it's situational. It's going to depend on what's going on, but I think the biggest factor is get there early, you know, because the, the, the rules, the, the, the uh, ethics and the, the, the practices and policies that people follow as far as etiquette on public land should be the same as on private land. So you want to make sure you're the first to get there. Um, for numerous reasons, A, it secures the spot that you want to hunt, and B, you know, you being in your stand when other people are, are out and about is going to, you know, push deer around too. So those are the, the first and foremost factors, I would assume, you know, in that particular scenario. Um, based on my experience in, in similar instances. Yeah. All right. Last scenario that I'm going to put you through. You're on the same piece of property, but you're a week, week and a half in. The deer know they're being hunted, right? Like things have changed. How is that going to influence your setups? Are you gonna Are you gonna back off the food sources? Are you gonna push in real close to bedding? Uh, are you gonna try to find places people aren't going? What? How? How is the uh, other hunter pressure? going to influence you and how you're hunting again it's always situational and i know i keep saying that it probably makes it sound like i don't know what i'm talking about but <laughs> you know if i if, if if i know that i'm dealing with other hunters that aren't very skilled if they, if they make a lot of bad decisions as far as where they hunt how they hunt you know if they have a history of not filling tags i'm not going to worry about them as much you know they may be hunting areas that aren't really on the deer they might be hunting closer to food sources where they're not they don't have as great a, uh, odds of seeing a deer um, 
But I think the biggest factor in all of this, if you know, if the deer know they're being hunted and there are other people you're dealing with, whether they're good hunters, bad hunters, whatever, the biggest factor is to catch a deer off guard. Over time, a deer will pattern you. They pattern us better than we pattern them, especially if, if we apply a bunch of hunting pressure. So doing something that catches that deer off guard is what it's all about. Doing something that that deer doesn't expect is what you got to do. And whatever that is, whatever that looks like in the particular scenario you find yourself in, that's the play. Because if a deer expects the person to be in this tree stand or if he's got some hunting pressure from this ground blind or, or, or whatever, that deer's going to know, okay, I need to avoid that area in daylight. It doesn't necessarily run them off the property, but it definitely can impact whether they use that area during daylight. So one option that you can do, um, and, and one that I commonly use, um, you know, get, getting away from generalities, such as catching deer off guard, which is really the big thing, whatever that looks like to you, that you can catch that deer off guard and not bump that deer, not spook that deer in the process. Um, that's what you got to do, whatever that looks like for the scenario that, that, that a person finds himself in. But something that I particularly like to do is I like to get in there and invade those bedding areas, even during early season, especially if they're being printed. Now I don't do that with property so much that I have sole access to. If it's a property that I have sole access to, unless it's a small property and there's a risk of a, a neighboring landowner uh, uh, killing that deer. So, so I guess it shouldn't just apply to sole access, but if it's a situation where I think that that deer is safe, then I don't do this. But if I feel like there's a chance that another hunter on the property or on a neighboring property might kill that deer, that's when I get aggressive. So, and, and this is something I've done numerous times. I have basically infiltrated bedding areas, got within 50 to 60 to 70 yards um, of a bedded deer and hung my stand there or hunted a stand that I'd already hung there, knowing that the deer were going to be bedded there. Um, I, I would say there have been anywhere from five to 10 times, seven, eight times anyway, where I have invaded a bedding area, basically either climbed a stand that was already hung or hung a stand quietly and looked out and there was tips of times you know, anywhere from 40 to 50 to 60 to 70 yards in front of me um, because I knew that deer was going to be there. And that is really, if you're in a high pressure situation where there's a high risk of somebody either A, killing that deer or pressuring it to the extent, which takes a good bit to push a deer completely out, but but pressuring it to the extent that that deer is going to leave, you got to get in there and hunt those bedding areas because a lot of times once a deer knows it's being pressured, it still moves in daylight. There really aren't many truly nocturnal deer out there but it will shrink how much they move in daylight. So instead of moving 200 yards in daylight, they might only move 50 or 60 or 70. And so really creeping into those bedding areas. And this is hard. Like I have messed up that more times than I've been successful. And I, I consider a successful bedding area invasion, uh, just getting in there and setting up and seeing that deer without spooking. You know, if you kill it even better, but just getting in there, that's hard. And, and it takes hours. Like, um, you know, getting in there from the time you leave the truck to the time you get there, you know, go your normal pace for the first however far you go. But that last 200 yards, especially the last 100 to 150 yards, that's going to take anywhere from an hour to two hours to complete because you're taking one step and stopping, taking one step and stopping. And and then actually hanging a tree, getting all your gear set up, that's going to take another hour. So a half-day hunt becomes a full-day hunt. And that's really what I do whenever it comes to targeting deer that I think are in danger of being killed by somebody else. Man, that, that piece right there is where I have gone wrong on so many different occasions. You know, I find a place where I want to get real aggressive. I want to get way in there. 
I want to push into bedding as close as possible, but I find myself rushing. I find myself in a hurry to get to the tree or I find myself, you know, didn't give myself enough time. And so I'm trying to hurry up and get in there. But yeah, man, that, that taking your time, you'd be surprised at what you can get away with if you can just move slowly and move quietly. Um, well, man, yeah. you need the right conditions. Sorry, sorry, but you need the right conditions to do that. Also, you got to have the wind in your favor. Um, and you need a little bit of wind cover because if it's dead quiet, you're, you're not going to be able to do it. You need some wind cover, you know, at least three or four to five mile an hour wind to, to be able to do that. If it's light and variable, you're not going to be able to do it. Uh, you might be able to get a hundred yards from that bedded deer, but you're not going to be able to get in there to 50. The closest I've ever been able to get to one was 30 yards. He was bedded down in a little ditch and, um, I, I thought he might be in there and I got about, like I said, I didn't, I didn't mean to get as close as I did. But uh, once I got my stand up, got up in the tree, got everything, you know, lined out, I looked up and there, there, there was his rack. I could see his, everything from the tops of his ears up, basically. Um, and, and he was about 30, 35 yards in front of me. Now, unfortunately, he could, he used to cover and went directly away from me. So I didn't, I didn't get that deer. But you can definitely get close to better deer if the conditions are right. If you go slow, you, you can't make any noise. You definitely can't make noise. So it's a painstaking process, especially when you're, hanging a stand or getting your deer ready, but you can definitely get closer to deer than you think. Yeah, man. Good stuff. Well, so we're, we're uh, just a few days away from your opener there in Kentucky. A lot of States are opening up here over the next two, three weeks. Uh, what do you have on the docket for the fall? Yeah. So I'm going to be hunting hard at home here. Um, we have several, you know, I, I'm the guy who I, you know, I, I will look at a 135 come through and he's going to get an arrow period. Uh, especially if it's a 140 plus, he steps out. He's he's gonna he's, he's gonna go home with me, and he's gonna he's gonna get put in the freezer. But uh, you know, this year's a little different. Um, you know, last season we had we had three bucks that were kind of 150 to 160 plus, and all of those bucks made it through uh, the season. Found sheds to a couple of them, and this year we've had we've not seen those deer yet they typically don't show up those three bucks that i'm talking about don't typically show up until mid to late october you know again we're talking about you know what happens yeah it's, it's very true that deer will, will have different some some deer will have different summer and fall ranges like i said i think at least 30 to 40 percent in the areas that i hunt have the same summer and fall ranges but 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 the greater percentage of them don't so um those deer don't typically show up until we've already, or excuse me, until mid to late October. But there's already one big deer that showed up in Velvet that I have not seen for two years, and he he's pretty significant too. So I'll be hunting hard here at home in Kentucky, but I'm also going to be hunting public land in Tennessee, Ohio, potentially Indiana, and there's always the chance that I do some oddball state uh, somewhere in the Midwest too. So so we'll see, but that's kind of the current plan. Awesome. Well, Josh, thanks for your time, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. Where can folks uh, go to find more from you? Yeah, so like I said, you can you can pretty much open a magazine or go to a website and you'll see some work from you there. Um, you know, like I said, a lot of work with North American Whitetail, Deer and Deer Hunting, um, Outdoor Lifefield Stream. You know, I do, I've written for about 60 or, excuse me, about 70 different hunting magazines and websites. And I do a lot of work for Realtree and some other brands in the industry, so... You can pretty much just do a Google search a lot of times and, and find something that way. But, uh, but yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It was an honor. And uh, hopefully, you know, I don't, consider my, I don't consider myself an expert, but hopefully somebody out there got a, a little something from this and uh, that, that might make them successful this fall. 
And that is all for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks to Josh for coming on. Hopefully he knocks one down in Kentucky this weekend and I can have him back on to tell us the story of how he put some of the tactics he talked about in this episode into practice to be successful. Uh, thanks also to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Deer Lab. Be sure to go leave us a review, follow along on Instagram, and if you're looking for other outdoor-themed content, head over to thesportsmansempire.com where you'll find my other podcast, The Wisconsin Sportsman, and a whole bunch of other relevant outdoor podcasts. Mm-hmm.